0: Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Ingtow-Larsen.
1: And I'm James Bray.
0: And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, shaping the fourth industrial revolution.
1: Baby boomers have been getting a lot of stick lately for nostalgia. Everybody's talking about how old people want to turn the clock back. In my own country, it was much commented on that support for Brexit was 20 points higher among 65-year-olds than amongst 25-year-olds. In America, support for Trump had a similar profile, prompting a South Park meme about voters being high on nostalgia-inducing berries.
0: But actually, if the baby boomers do feel nostalgic for the 50s and 60s, in terms of inclusiveness, they may have a point. Danny Leipziger is the managing director of the Growth Dialogue.
2: I mean, in the post-war period, from 1950 to 1970, uh, growth in the US was very inclusive, you know. Um, there was a, a record number of people that, uh, you know, owned shares in AT&T. Everyone felt that they were part of the, um, of the expansion of the economy. Uh, the differences in wages between workers and CEOs was, you know, one-fifth or one-tenth of what it is today. Uh, income distribution was, you know, uh, at, at tolerable levels um, and wage income was growing along with productivity. Um, starting around the 1980s, um, uh, wage levels did not keep up with productivity increases and then starting around 2000, incomes did not keep up and and employment did not keep up uh, with general GDP trends. So. It was a delinking, in my view, um, along the way that began to uh, take apart a little bit the inclusive uh, growth uh, that was going on in the U.S. It's not to say that it was equal. Not everyone did equally well. Obviously, there was issues of hard work, opportunity, and also, you know, inherited wealth and and risk takers and uh, capitalists doing better than workers. But there was a lot a lot of sharing of the pie, and uh, that that period is over. Um, I think uh, lobbying has had a lot to do with changing uh, uh, tax laws and changing regulations to benefit a few. Um, I think politics has gotten a very short term and and uh, and, and less concerned with uh, overall uh, equality. Um, So there was a period in the U.S., I think, which was relatively inclusive. Um, I think that's quite at odds with what we see today.
0: The U.S.A. isn't the only story of this kind. Across the world, growth and productivity have slowed while many citizens face rising inequality. It probably shouldn't be a massive surprise, then, that at the same time we are seeing grumpy electorates, more unpredictable political outcomes, and a growing willingness to reject liberal economic orthodoxies about the benefits of globalization. The concern is that as the fourth industrial revolution gathers pace, these trends deepen into something far more sinister. After all, historically speaking, revolutions can get nasty.
1: Jonathan Ostry is the Deputy Director of Research at the International Monetary Fund. I think what we could see is
3: a more pervasive rise of populism, nativism, protectionism, and basically a wholesale abandonment of the liberal economic order that has lifted billions of people out of poverty over the past several decades. The scary example is surely the interwar period, which was good neither for average incomes nor for equity. You could really wind up in a very nasty place under such a scenario, where broad support for globalization wanes in key countries, and the multilateralism that has helped promote openness and trade as engines of growth fall by the wayside. This would be, as I said, neither good for average incomes nor for inclusion and equity.
0: As a proponent of globalization, of course we remain excited about its potential to lift living standards around the world, as it has been doing for decades. Danny Leipziger of the Growth Dialogue
2: economic welfare depends on uh, improving people's uh, incomes and uh, we have seen a number of countries over the course of the last 30 years uh, who have managed to move uh, from very low incomes, you know, hundred dollars per capita in Korea in the sixties or Vietnam in 1990 uh, to middle-income Uh, or OECD status in the case of uh, Korea. so uh, Producing more um, is useful because it generates uh, income and improves people's uh, well-being. Uh, To the extent that there's broad sharing of these benefits through greater employment, through greater income generation, and then through greater consumption, uh, you see the societies that have dramatically improved the well-being of their populations. This is not possible uh, if you don't have economic growth. Uh, So we do have some cases, usually oil exporting economies, uh, who have on paper generated economic growth but whose populations have not benefited very much at all. Um, uh, They are the outliers. Um, If you particularly are not an oil exporter or a uh, resource-dependent economy and you generate economic growth, Uh, it's largely going to be on the back of exports, Um, and that was certainly the case in East Asia, Uh, and that's why there's an intrinsic link between globalization and uh, economic development. Uh, Economic development would not have been possible uh, for China or for any of the countries in East Asia uh, were it not for a pretty open uh, trade and financial uh, system. Uh, And uh, the reality is that You want to increase the size of the pie, uh, and you of course are concerned with the distribution of that pie, but if the pie is not growing, there's not much uh, that uh, can be uh, gotten.
1: That said, as the pie growth slows, so its distribution naturally comes more sharply into focus. And for some, especially in the rich world, the picture that emerges from recent decades doesn't look so great. If you're in the middle class in the north and you've seen your income stagnate for years, the idea that you're doing well out of globalization could be starting to wear a bit thin.
3: We've had a situation in the latter decades where gains have accrued largely to the top of the income distribution. One has to be careful because it does vary to some degree across countries. There are a range of developing countries, for example, where, if you look at the evolution of income growth by deciles, while the shares in growth are not equal by any means, all deciles, even the bottom, have gained, but typically far less than those at the top. Many would say that that's a good deal overall, and see the verdict on globalization in such cases as a glass half full rather than half empty. We do have a number of other environments, however, in which median wages and incomes have been largely stagnant in the face of very large gains at the top. In those kinds of situations, people, I think, are right to question whether the social contract is really working in a fair way. My sense is that there's justification to say that it hasn't.
0: So, how did we get here, and what's the answer? Wasn't globalization meant to be great for everybody? There's no shortage of diagnoses here. First, Sergei Guriev, chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development.
4: Textbooks represent a much more uh, uh, simplified view of the world and of benefits of globalization than they should. And there is uh, a recent book by Dani Rodrik, A straight, straight Talk on Trade, which actually gives this interesting challenge that economists in Economics 101 sell globalization as the thing which is good for everybody. While in PhD courses, economists talk about nuances and trade-offs and policies that must complement globalization. And in that sense, you have this duality. Then the same econ- uh, professor of economics in public can talk about great globalization, great benefits of globalization. And it is true. Globalization is lifting hundreds of millions out of poverty. And yet, in more nuanced discussion, in a research seminar, in a PhD course, the very same professor will talk about the challenges related to globalization and technological process, progress and fourth industrial revolution.
0: Back to Danny Leipziger.
2: Well, I think uh, there's the issue that uh, uh, firms uh, can be global, uh, but citizenry is national. So um, either you have to capture the benefits of globalization and then have internal policies, tax redistribution, uh, labor market adjustment policies, whatever, uh, to deal with the downsides of globalization, as Joe Stiglitz uh, prophetically wrote about uh, almost 20 years ago, Um, or uh, you will have this kind of pushback. So I think uh, one of the things that was not well recognized is that uh, you just can't keep a hands-off policy and say, let globalization proceed, uh, without looking at the domestic uh consequences, the second failure I believe is that uh, globalization has gone too far uh to the extent that global regulation doesn't capture um, a lot of the uh, misbehaviors of globalization so parking profits in 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 uh, in low tax uh, havens or you know Manipulating transfer pricing, uh, which a lot of global firms do, um, uh, ends up robbing national treasuries of the resources they need to do uh, the redistribution. So I think globalization, in that sense, uh, has been, uh, quote unquote, underregulated. Um, and the third factor that I don't think was sufficiently taken into account when one looked at the benefits of globalization, which clearly are, are, are manifold. Is that some countries are gaming the system more than others and uh, if you have a state capitalism operating uh, uh, it uh, provides an unfair advantage uh, to those firms in terms of uh, credit and government policies uh, and then you get you know difficulties with respect to uh, dumping or inter- intellectual property uh, or uh, or hostile takeovers, whatever. Um, So that's an aspect of globalization that I don't think the international uh, community has dealt well with.
0: So how do we keep globalization, which still has so many benefits to offer, but make the gains more inclusive? The forum has been looking for answers. As you would expect, though, there are lots of them. Inclusive growth is a big subject, and there are no silver bullets. We are talking about the basics here. Access to decent education and healthcare, gender equality, a proper safety net, a lot of unsexy day in day out grind that politicians find it easy to be distracted from. Inclusive growth, however, can't be measured by GDP alone. Helpfully, we at the Forum have created a roadmap for policymakers. Margareta Dresnick Hanus, our head of global competitiveness and risk, explains.
5: Uh, yes, indeed, we we know that there's a need for more inclusive growth model. Many policymakers don't know how to get there. So we have developed a framework, a policy framework uh, that looks at seven elements, seven pillars of inclusive growth. And these are um, education, how inclusive is education, uh, basic services, do we provide them to everyone, but also corruption and rents. Um, is the financial intermediation model working? Uh, are people able to build assets and to uh, to invest into the real economy as well? It also looks at employment and at fiscal transfers. So these are seven elements that we have identified as being uh, key for a more inclusive growth model. Um, we assess about 100 and uh, above more than 100 countries on the different aspects of uh, of this model to help policymakers navigate this space. And in addition to it, we have uh, also developed what we call the Inclusive Development Index. And this index um, ranks countries um, by their ability to provide a more um, inclusive development model and looks at growth and development, which is an important dimension, but also inclusion and uh, intergeneration equity as an additional dimension. It, has a, it is an alternative to GDP in many ways because it provides a much more holistic and much more broader measure of economic progress. There's more generally a need you know, to, to rethink how we measure GDP um, and how we measure economic progress as such and to move towards a more multidimensional notion of economic progress which not only looks at the output which is measured by GDP but which looks also at uh, well-being of people and which is more, more, more centred on people rather than really on the, on the supply side.
1: This might be good news for those of us who hope for more inclusive growth as the fourth industrial revolution does offer us some big opportunities for quantum improvements in areas beyond GDP. Both education and healthcare, in particular, might be set for massive productivity gains as fourth industrial revolution technologies make their mark. There is scope for huge unleashing of human potential as people's capacities are enhanced by wearables, AI and data. Jeremy Howard is a deep learning expert and entrepreneur and sees huge opportunities for countries to radically shift performance on some of the pillars that we at the Forum see as key to inclusive growth.
6: The only realistic way to actually provide modern medicine to most of the world is through AI, specifically deep learning. And that's an example of the promise in medicine. Um, the promise in education is similar. Uh, we can have extremely dynamic flexible algorithms that are responding to every individual student to give them the optimal problem sets or information they need at every moment. It's similar in dealing with world hunger for handling things like precision agriculture.
4: I'm very optimistic here, but I also know education system very well. I used to run a university myself, and I know how conservative education institutions are. And I think this is the challenge. I think this is the main challenge for the fourth industrial revolution. I'm hopeful for AI that can actually figure out what your difficulties are, what your challenges are, and custom tailor the course for you and make sure that for you this course is more productive. Learning is not easy. As a professor, I also know that teaching is not easy. And it's very hard to teach the same stuff to many students. So we want technology to help to design individual tailored courses for every student. I think this is this is what can work, and I hope this this is something that will work. It's not a science fiction, of course. No, no. We now have face recognition technology, which is working really well. So, by looking at you, your smartphone will figure out whether you are smiling, you are happy, you are learning, you lack focus, you actually feel stressed, and that, of course, will create the need to repeat the material, to structure it differently, and so on. We can also figure out whether you learn better through visuals or text, stuff like this.
1: Or take the vision of the future of care offered by Pascal Fung, a computer scientist working to make artificial intelligence empathetic. What looks like a huge challenge for many societies might be solved in a bound.
7: A lot of societies are aging, so in Asia, in Japan, China, Hong Kong, uh, India, even we're all facing the aging society issues. So in twenty, thirty years, when I'm old. Uh, there won't be enough young people to take care of the older people. So there are two issues with uh, old people. One is that who's going to take care of them. The other one is actually for older people to be still remain engaged with the society. And these are the two areas where AI can help, uh, in particular empathetic machines. Um, so the definition of empathetic machines uh, is that uh, machines that can recognize people's emotions, uh, personality affect your pain, your joy, and everything, and also being able to respond with appropriate responses. So it's two sides, the recognition and then the appropriate response. So, might, so for care, obviously, um, what empathetic machines can do is they can help detect, uh, first of all, recognition, it can detect dementia, detect the onset of uh, Alzheimer's and so on, so sort of alert the uh, family members and doctors and nurses to uh, these conditions of um, aging. And a lot of times, older people have problems because they feel lonely. So no people, uh, they don't have anybody to talk to. Now, we're not suggesting that empathetic machines should replace family members. But uh, when family members are busy, it can be a way for them to keep engaged and therefore uh, keep being um, active mentally. So that's, uh, that's the picture.
0: If there is an elephant in the room in the discussion about inclusive growth, it is surely tax. Fans of inclusive growth have different priorities, but nobody we've spoken to for this episode think it is possible without big changes on tax.
4: We need to make sure that everybody pays taxes and uh, tax Havens are somehow closed down, and there is radical transparency in who benefits from what's called BEPS base erosion and profit shifting. So that is something to address. We need to make sure that people who are left behind know that it is not because the game is tilted against them by the rich, by the elites, by the skilled people, and. these are the issues which are very important. And eventually, indeed, things like universal basic income, things like guarantee that whatever happens to you, you will not die of hunger and you will have health insurance and you, your kids will have access to public goods. This is very important.
2: Uh, we certainly uh, you know, took a view on the um, tax issues that we have already discussed. Uh, we are in a world in which... Uh, new firms uh, with declining or even zero marginal cost are making huge profits, uh, and uh, we don't seem to be able to capture them uh, very well for redistributive purposes. Now, some countries, particularly the Nordics and others in Europe, redistribute quite a bit. Uh, the U.S., uh, Canada, and a few others redistribute uh, much smaller proportions uh, of what they uh, get, what they um, collect. So that's an area. I think uh, we know uh, that in some countries, uh, corporate tax uh, revenue is uh, too low uh, compared to the profitability of the firm. So obviously, they're able to shelter it in one uh, form or another, whether it's tax avoidance by uh, domiciling the company in in, in some low-tax haven country or uh, whatever, Uh, there seems to be um, Pretty low tax take from some very successful companies, but I think one would have to look more closely at the top 1% or even the top 0.1% of the population and find out how they're able to uh, shelter their income. It's not just corporations, right? I mean, uh, in the election a few you know years back, you know, we we found out that uh, one of the candidates paid a tax of 14%. Uh, when he was, you know, worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, that's uh, certainly higher than uh, than what the middle class, uh, I mean, that's a, a lower tax rate than what the middle class is paying. So um, there are issues of distribution, there are issues of equality um, that I think um, we know about.
0: But if it's so clear that this needs to be fixed, what are the prospects for change? No technological fixes here, just raw politics.
2: Clearly, people who are in the top 0.1% have a lot of political power, and so we see it now in the context of the tax bill that's in front of the U.S. Congress, which is largely regressive. Uh, So at a time when income distribution is at its worst, um, and we haven't seen this kind of inequality since 1929, uh, the tax program that is in front of the U.S. Congress and may well pass uh, it will make the situation of the middle class worse rather than better. Uh, there's a bit of a disconnect, I believe, uh, between the usual participants in the World Economic Forum, uh, by which I mean, you know, the people who come to Davos, et cetera, et cetera, and some of the work of the councils right? I think the councils are looking at issues that don't show up very much uh, and don't show up front and center uh, in these uh, big uh, meetings and I think that if the World Economic Forum wants to balance off its interest in the fourth industrial revolution with its interests in more inclusive growth, uh, it's going to have to take a much more visible stance uh, to try to shame companies uh, into uh, behaving better with respect to globalization concerns of the types we discussed, um, and also try to encourage these large and powerful and influential firms and their CEOs to be a bit more farsighted uh, inside their own national uh, dialogues uh, to argue for inclusive growth, right? So in the U.S., um, I don't see a lot of CEOs out there worried about the fact that income distribution has gotten rather unequal, right? Um, And if you play the fast-forward scenario, you know, you could have a country in which people live in gated communities who are very wealthy, and then you have people who uh, live outside who are... Uh, not making ends meet. Um, I I don't think that we need to go in that direction, but I think there's a lack of uh, leadership, a lack of statesmanship, and I would say that the business community has not been um, exemplary uh, in the way it is uh, viewed uh, these uh, phenomena. So um, I think the World Economic Forum needs to get out of its comfort zone and... Uh, needs to uh, talk about some of the downsides of not doing anything, and um, at the moment, I don't see the business community stepping up.
4: No, I think there is progress, and indeed, two thousand eighteen will be an important year. And it just I'm not—I'm not—I'm not a specialist. Uh, in this field, but uh, in 2018 we will have major changes and uh, eventually companies eventually, not necessarily next year, but eventually companies will pay taxes where they make money. Why the progress is slow? Because uh, there are powerful interests that benefit from lower taxes. And indeed we see that some companies make billions in unpaid taxes because of their ability to shift profits to lower tax destinations.
5: There is an issue um, because the tax base has been narrowing down over the past years and this needs to be addressed. Um, We need new solutions in order to address this issue and uh, more dialogue among the different types of stakeholders. And one of the issues we'll be addressing uh, at our Davos sessions is exactly um, how to reshape fiscal policies and make them fit for the future in order to um, account for the new technologies that are advancing very quickly, but also in order to make them contribute more to a more inclusive growth model.
1: Wouldn't that be nice? However powerful new technologies might be, they aren't immune from political control. The sense of determinism we feel about technology shaping our lives ignores the power states continue to wield. Witness how Facebook is doing in China, for instance. It follows that when it comes to inclusive growth, different politics are going to produce different outcomes in different territories. Whether your fourth industrial revolution is inclusive or not might come down in the end to where you live. Jeremy Howard again.
6: In the U.S., terrible. You know, I, I, I don't see the U.S. doing well at all. Parts of Europe, you know, including Switzerland, um, pretty good. Um, and indeed, when you look at charts showing the change in income inequality over time by country, the most English-speaking nations have a U-shape, you know. In other words, inequality decreased um, uh, for quite a while on a country-by-country basis, but then recently it's increasing a lot, nearly back to its worst levels. Um, But in uh, non-English-speaking Europe um, and Japan, they have uh, more of an L-shape which is to say that the inequality got lower and lower and then it stayed there. And I think this shows the kind of difference between the kinds of policies and cultures you have in these two different places. So you know, we're clearly gonna need um, a new way of distributing resources that is not based on human labor because human labor is not gonna be a scarce resource for very much longer. Um, which means we will need, firstly, negative income tax, and later on, we will need basic guaranteed income, Um, and we'll need a culture where those things are not considered handouts to lazy people, but are considered, you know, important ways of, of normal people living a dignified life. And that seems something that can and probably will happen in Europe and probably won't happen in the US.
1: How would this new form of distribution happen? The hot topic at the moment is, of course, universal basic income. Sergei Guriev is a fan.
4: Yes, I think uh, it is time for big ideas. And uh, I think the, the existing evidence suggests that, well, the skepticism that people stop working if they see UBI, this is not consistent with the evidence we have from developed and developing countries. And we have now quite a few experiments going on. Another argument is that we cannot afford UBI. This is not exactly true because that much depends, of course, on what basic means. In some countries, we are talking about 500 euros per month. In some countries, we talk about, say, 900 euros per month. Switzerland put on the referendum 25, 2800 francs per month. So there is a huge variation in the levels. However, in most developed countries today, we no longer have hunger. We no longer have people who die of lack of food, which means society as a whole can afford social systems that provide minimum living standard to everybody, which means if you restructure all the social assistance systems, there will be enough resources. And again, libertarians support UBI because they believe that by restructuring the system and simplifying them, the government will actually cut the red tape and reduce the burden of the government. What is problematic here is whether indeed it would undermine incentives of people to work. And second, whether it would remove the purpose of life. Because today, if you're unemployed, if you lose a job, your happiness levels actually go down much more than could be explained by loss of income. But that may be related to the fact that it's not just the job you lose, but you also know that every month. You're staying out of job. So these issues are very, very important. And we still don't know what drives people's dignity and sense of purpose. And if UBI is treated as a handout and people who receive UBI are second-class citizens, then, of course, UBI will fail. If the society develops in a way that uh, if you receive UBI, you are treated as less fortunate, but not necessarily lazy, that is a different story.
0: If making growth inclusive is a hard job, it doesn't look like it's going to get any easier in the short term. With fiscal space limited, interest rates near zero, and demographic trends unfavorable in many countries, there are plenty of smart people who think low growth is the new norm. If the fourth industrial revolution is to succeed for a broader base than the first industrial revolution, business as usual is no longer an option.
1: You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray.
0: And me, Anne-Marie Intov Larsen, thank you for listening.
1: Join us for the next episode, where we will look at what we can all do to participate constructively in shaping a fourth industrial revolution for everybody.
0: And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give you clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon.